my name is Christoph Frey. I lead the Emeralds Energy Transformation Fund and Activities. It's my great pleasure to be here with um, Michael Liebreich today. Michael Liebreich is chairman of uh, Liebreich Associates, uh, but is probably best known to our audience as a long-term commentator on energy dynamics. Michael, um, we are in an extraordinary situation at the moment. We uh, see electricity and gas prices, you know, multiplied by 10. And we see a lot of transformation questions raised. And probably my first question to you is, do you see as a long-term observer of learning curves of how, how new technologies make their way into markets, do you see this as a moment where we accelerate um, this transformation or is it uh, slowing it down? So, Christoph, great to be here. Great to see you. And, you know, we I don't know how many years since we first met, but it's probably 12 or 15. And every year we could say, well, this is a pivotal year. This is the year that something big is happening and, and, and so on. But, you know, it really is true this year. This is absolutely extraordinary. Um, the price spikes. And I think the realization that energy security has to be at the heart of the transition you know, we thought about it from an environmental perspective, and then the economics started to make sense of you know, the, the learning curves and so on. But we really didn't think enough about resilience and security. And you know, we, we've got to get through this this winter. We've got to get through next winter. But this thinking that we have to price in resilience—it's um, now—it's the new reality. And you know, the the trilemma it now is all three. And I think it's going to accelerate the transition. I think it is going to be a big accelerant. Um, at the moment, we're scrambling. We've got to get through. We've got to protect people from these huge price spikes. Um, we've got to keep the lights on. We've got to keep some semblance of industry working uh, through the winters. But particularly as we go through, let's say, 2024 to 2030, a huge acceleration because we've got to get off this dependence on gas in Europe. And then, of course, in the US, with the Inflation Reduction Act, you have a huge acceleration there as well. So the world is going to be very, very different in 2030 from where we thought it was going to be. Keyword resilience. I think it's one thing to observe individual technology accelerate um, in, you know, in batteries, in solar, in wind. And, but the keyword of resilience puts the emphasis on the system. You know, what is the technology that you think is most critically to be deployed at this moment when it comes to resilience? That's a really complicated question because resilience, you were sort of going there, it's an emergent property of a system. So resilience is everything from, first of all, being more energy efficient, right? Just use less to achieve the same economic outcomes. That's resilient. Um, storage, everybody jumps to, ah, well, solar and wind are intermittent, so we need storage. Well. Maybe we need, well, not maybe, definitely we need more interconnections as well, because the larger area you connect, the lower the variability. Um, we need maybe overcapacity. It might be cheaper just to generate, have more capacity than you need and simply not use it all the time. And if you look at things like uh, hydropower, historically, we didn't use it to the max, right? It's not like we reached every um, uh, every summer with the lakes completely empty. You know, we kept some in reserve. So there's all of the above that we need to do um, to, to achieve resilience. Um, but we're going to have to really invest in it. It's not something that's going to just happen. I think, uh, so we, in the past few decades, we've really underplayed the resilience question. So a lot of people say, oh, well, 
solar will be more resilient because it happens everywhere. It's, it's a domestic resource, wind and solar. Well, yes and no. I mean, it happens everywhere, but if, it's, if you then have um, two, three weeks, four weeks with very low wind, then you're not resilient. You can't just assume it. You have to think it through and you have to have, um, you know, you have, to have a plan for each thing that can go wrong. Um, it, so it's, it's, I guess what I'm saying, the short version is it's all of the above. It's all of the above and it's going to cost money and investment and time. So more storage, use hydro better, overproduce, um, wind, solar, batteries. Among interconnections. Those interconnections. Yep. Yep. If you look at all those areas, and again, you have done that for many years now, you know, in some areas, the, the learning curve have come down tremendously. Is this stopping now? Or is this, no. is this you know, what, 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 where are we? Yeah. Where are we? And what is the next technology jump here? Right, so the learning curve never stops because learning never stops. What, uh, what we're going to be seeing, though, is because of the, the price spike, the inflationary spike, and also particularly in batteries, because we're now seeing this surge of demand, what it means is the cost reductions that we've been seeing will be, let's call it, on hold. We've seen this before, by the way. Um, in 2004 to 2008, solar prices did not go down. Right? The learning continued, but it was not passed on because there was so much demand that the supply chain was overwhelmed. And so we saw solar prices horizontal, and then suddenly in 2009, 8, 9, they collapsed. And I think in batteries, we're going to see something like that. The demand, now we see electric vehicles taking off. We see the inflationary effects of this price spike. So battery costs, which came down 90% in the last 10 years, are now going flat, maybe even up a bit. But the supply chain will, keep, will catch up, and the learning will, you know, is working in the background. And so we're going to see this collapse again in prices, particularly of batteries. But... Again, coming back to the question of resilience and storage, you know, all of the batteries in the world are enough to run the global economy for, I don't know what the number is, half an hour. And so you can grow it by 10, you can grow it by 100, you can grow it by 1,000. It still actually doesn't provide the levels of resilience that we used to get from big piles of coal or gas storage and so on. So we've got a real challenge to... And it won't be batteries. Now, it could be... Um, it could be uh, long-term storage through hydrogen, through ammonia. These are possible solutions, um, but it's, it's going to be an all-of-the-above approach. I want to come back to um, the long-term storage because it's clearly one of the issues that keeps our LPs, our um, energy companies that are, are looking at innovation with us, is a very, very important topic. But before doing that, you have also mentioned uh, supply chain uh, aspects. And... You know, to what extent learning curve continues, but supply chain changes as well, yeah. the way we look at specific technologies. We want technologies to be resilient also with regards to their supply yeah. chain. So material-wise, et cetera. So where do you see that affecting learning curves at this stage? Well, so I think that's, you know, we have this immediate, you know, crisis going on, uh, you know, with the price spike and the Ukraine and so on. But, but the kind of, the other thing that really gives me pause for thought and gives me real concern is the supply chain of materials. Because the learning curve, you know, it applies to, you know, manufacturing and it applies, you know, it's kind of once you've got the, the materials into the system, then I know we can just get better and better. We can't break the laws of physics and thermodynamics, but we can just learn. So, But the amount of minerals that we need um, for this transition, whether it is, you know, wind, solar, 
whether it is actually sustainable airline fuels uh, and the catalysts that are going to be needed or whether it is batteries, you know, we cannot have a situation where some wealthy countries become very good, virtuous, green and climate uh, net zero, but that we're pillaging the rest of the world for the materials. And so we need learning around reducing the use of materials. We need learning around recycling materials. We need um, just different ways. So lithium, getting lithium from seawater or from brines that outside the kind of very, you know, at the moment, lithium comes from areas which are very water stressed and the process requires a lot of water. We need technological breakthroughs in, in all of these areas. And also we need to make sure that we are being ethical in the way that we treat the local participants, local peoples, and so on. And that gives me a lot of concern. So we, uh, we are actually seeing, indeed, um, when we look at innovation every time now, battery storage as an example, we look, we ask the question, so those materials, are they, can they be sourced, yeah. um, you, know, geo, you know, geopolitically in, independent, globally, uh, anywhere? Yeah. And, and I think a good example is the iron phosphate type of uh, replacement of nickel cobalt and lithium ion ba batteries, etc. Mm. Is there an area that keeps you particularly excited or, uh, or uh, interested in that context? I, I, not specific areas. I tell you why, because I tend to be, I mean, I, maybe this is a cop-out, but I, I'm, I'm flying at, you know, sort of 30,000 feet and saying, because if it's not that particular technology, you know, because some people will say, oh, it's uh, um, redox batteries, and some people will say it's iron phosphate, and some people will say it's, uh, you know, it's, it's some other technology, sodium, whatever. And, you know, th there is now so much money and so many smart people being thrown at these problems that I'm confident we can solve them. But it's, it's, um, it's res we need that resilience and we also need just the ethics of the whole process. Um, and you, know, you, you only have to look at um, the aftermath of oil exploration in the Ogoni Delta to know what I'm talking about, you know, to say, well, it, it's, it's not, not just what we do and which technologies, it's also how we do it. And I think you're saying resilience at two levels, the system level, but also the supply chain level. Now, um, coming back to uh, the ammonia and seasonal storage question, yep. uh, you have um, published, and I think it has been widely picked up, your hydrogen ladder, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, and there's areas clearly where hydrogen, uh, you know, does make sense and has probably low entry barriers, and there's others we can, we can talk later about, but uh, seasonal storage is one of the areas where we're talking about various solutions. What, what are the solutions that you're, you know, that you're considering as well? Right. So, so the, what the ladder does, just for anybody who may not know, is um, it tries to differentiate between different use cases of hydrogen. So right now, we are using in the world nearly 100 million tons a year of hydrogen, most of it made from natural gas or coal, so gray or black hydrogen. And the top layer of the ladder says this we have to go clean right this has to this is not optional this we have to do um, the next layer down is things that it's very hard to see how we do without hydrogen so that might be some of the um, aviation fuels or shipping fuels we're not going to be plugging in ships right we're not going to have enough batteries to do uh, um, across the oceans you know transoceanic shipping and one of the things on that sort of level B, you know, it's hard to see how we do it any other way, is if you really want to have a month's worth of storage for your economy, then there are very few candidates. If you're lucky, you do pumped storage. In Switzerland, you have a lot of hydro and height differences, great. But for most of the world, they're not going to be able to do pumped storage, uh, hydro pumped storage. So then what can you do everywhere? You look at mechanical gravitational storage, it's a joke. The physics of it is a joke. 
the amount of energy that you can store. Uh, and you come down to things like um, liquid air and you come down to either hydrogen or ammonia uh, because those are storable and they're storable in very large amounts. They, they actually could scale. Um, so those are those are potential uses of, uh, of hydrogen. And you, you get to then you go down the, the ladder and you get to some other things, long distance trucking, uh, really remote rail. And, and it's kind of at some point you start, I lose, I lose the faith. I lose the faith. And you get to the bottom and you're like, why would you do a hydrogen bus? There's absolutely no, no, no reason that I can really see for that. Now, I, I think we clearly see that resonate. Uh, we, we see on the one hand that uh, on the utility side, massive interest in the, you know, once you run out, or, or, as you say, the hydro, uh, pumped hydro storage in, in, this, in this space. Um, what are the other, say, two or three areas where you'd say the hydrogen and thin fuel, you know, any, no. uh, any linked uh, chemical will play a major role? You say not transport, not the trucks, uh, not the, the you, you believe in the battery space, but what are other areas do you believe? Uh, right, so um, trucks, very long, if you ask me, um, trucking in Europe, I look at it and I say, well, I think a battery can solve all of that because we drive, you know, four and a half hours and then the truck drivers have to stop and actually you could recharge. That's very different if you're talking about trucking across Canada uh, in winter. If that's what you need to do, and you really need to do that net zero, you're not going to do that with a battery. Now, you could do it with biofuels, or you could do it with hydrogen for something like that. If you're looking at um, off, you know, uh, what they call non-road non mobile machinery, forestry um, machinery, uh, road graders, construction machinery, places where there are no plugs, then maybe hydrogen, if you have to go net zero, it's kind of between hydrogen and biofuels as to how you're going to do that. Um, so there are promising areas. Um, I just, if I might, I want to come back to just one thing about, you know, the, even the, um, the, the, the top of the ladder. So the uh, using hydrogen in refineries and in fertilizers and then in long-term storage and so on. What we will not be doing is importing liquid hydrogen. Right. That is at the moment this big thing. And, and this is where I kind of get, uh, you know, I, I know you want to talk about opportunities, but the opportunity is very often the flip side of something that doesn't work. The physics of making liquid hydrogen is so inefficient, 40 percent losses. The ships are so big because hydrogen is so uh, non-dense that it's it's just a non-starter. So then you say, OK, well, you know, we can do ammonia, but it's very inefficient to make. So we'll do a little bit of that. The flip side is actually high voltage DC, electrification for everything that doesn't work with hydrogen, there is an opportunity around electrification. So I'm gonna maybe cheat and say, I'm very excited about industrial heat, electrification of industrial heat, which people say has to be done with a gas and immediately drives them towards hydrogen, but actually is much more efficiently and effectively done through electrification. It's more disruptive, but fantastic opportunities there. And electrochemistry, fantastic opportunities. So hard to abate, watch them twice. If it's heat, it could be electric is, your, is a key message. Uh, meanwhile, there, there are hard to abate that will require solutions. And shipping, sh yeah, shipping, aviation, long-term storage, those are the ones I would probably be looking at. You know, if, if I was kind of, if I really had to be, uh, you know, betting on hydrogen in, outside and the- fertilizers, the, you, know, you mentioned. And, 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 of course, yeah, so the, and, and of course, the other thing is, even if you even if you just look at fertilizers and refineries, then 
it means it completely overwhelms any supply chain that we have for electrolyzers, for renewable energy. So any innovations there on the supply side are probably going to be um, you know, snapped up, right? Um, because you know, we have this 100 million ton per year market for clean hydrogen, which we know about because it's dirty hydrogen now. So if you have, you know, if you have to invest in hydrogen, the supply side looks much, much uh, lower risk than some of the stuff on the demand side. Let's fast forward five years from now. We look back and say, you know, we should have. What are you going to judge your look back? You know, this is such a critical moment. There's so many things we can do right or wrong, and particularly now in Europe as well. What, what will be your criteria to assess whether we have done right or wrong at this stage? I think, gosh, well, look, five years, let's call it 2030, because that's eight years, but it's the same order of magnitude. And we know what we need. I mean, the science is very clear. If you want one and a half degrees, we have to have halved emissions uh, you know, by 2030. Um, so we will look back. I believe we will have reduced emissions from their peak by 10 or 15%, not enough. So if you want to have the scientific answer, it's 50% reduction and we're not going to hit it, in my view. In terms of sectors, I think we are under-investing in um, the electrification of heat. I think we're under-investing in the electrification of transport. And I think we're under-investing in um, the bio-pathways. You know, in a lot, of, a lot of the people who've been doing this as long as you and I, remember the biofuels, the second, next, second generation biofuels boom bust, right? A whole load of venture capitalists said, stand aside, we're from California, we understand how to do innovation, and wasted all their money trying to do biofuels, 2007, 8, uh, and so on. But, you know, at the time, our knowledge of pathways, our knowledge, we hadn't even, you know, we hadn't even sequenced the genome of crops that were supposed to be used or of uh, waste you know, streams that we were supposed to be using. It was so primitive and it failed. But that does not mean that bio, uh, and I'm talking largely about waste stream, bio, agricultural waste, forestry waste. Um, so you look at things like uh, airline fuels. You know, we're having these discussions about you know, what I would call almost fantasy technologies uh, you know, long-haul planes using, um, I hate to say it, but hydrogen. Uh, this is, you know, just look at the size, look at the size of the fuel tank and ask yourself where it's supposed to fit within an aeroplane, and, and that discussion is over within minutes. But sustainable airline fuels, right now we have no clear line of sight. So we could be looking back in five years um, saying, sort of, now we understand the problem, and I think we can accelerate that process. Um, so that, that's, those are the areas I think we should be pushing harder and faster on. So if I try to summarize, probably you're saying, first of all, resilience is really critical. Yeah. Resilience means um, storage, means all of the above. It means interconnection. It means obviously use what you have uh, already to its best, including hydro. It means diversified uh, supply chains. But then um, uh, Looking a bit uh, further out, you, you clearly emphasize there is a role for hydrogen, hydrogen, but be very careful. There is yeah. lots of areas where you actually can get it wrong. So focus on shipping, long distance transport uh, and uh, seasonal storage. And I think your last point, looking back in, um, uh, in, a, in 2030 to now, uh, things like transportation and heat, you may have underestimated and those yeah. are... Any last, any last we, point? We, so two last points. 
um, on heat, you, you just brought this in right at the end and it's actually critically important. Heat pumps is a magic technology, right? Heat pumps multiply, everything else divides. And that brings me to the final, final point, which is we need policy innovation because um, these things won't happen just by themselves. You know, industry, innovators, you believe in them, I believe in them, but they work within a regulatory framework. If you want resilience, you probably just have to pay for resilience. And the way that our uh, private markets work is people who invest in excess capacity or in excess stored, you know, uh, uh, you know, in the supply chain. If you don't want to do just in time, it costs money to store things. So I think our policymakers, you know, have to uh, be more, they, you know, they have to get involved and and we need innovation, um, you know, or we won't get that. It's very difficult, right, because we need, we need price signals to allocate resources but the price signals alone will squeeze out resilience and environmental goods and all sorts of things. So we have got a lot of work to do. So getting the whole discussion around what is the right market design right is absolutely critical. Absolutely critical as well. Thank you very much, Michael Liebreich. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you, Christoph.